This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading, in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your dedicated books and comics show here on the Trek FM network. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and with me as he is every week is the world-renowned Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you tonight? Here, here, I am here. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent, excellent. I'm just so happy. I'm just like (laughs) giddy right now because... I don't know, because we're doing this show, and I like talking Star Trek books and stuff. <laughs> Perfect. I can't think of another reason to be happy than that, happier than that. So, yeah. No, that's great. I can think of one. Oh, what might that be? We've got Amy Nelson with us. What? <laughs> oh, my goodness, you're right. Amy! Hi, how's it going? Hi, guys. I am super, super happy that you're having me back on Literary Treks. It's been far too long. I, you've been a little busy. <laughs> Excellent. Well, we're always happy to have you on the show. Wait a, wait a minute. If Amy's here and we're not talking about a book having to do with Q, that can only mean, do we have another Mirror Broken comic to talk about? Yay! I'm so excited, you guys. You've got to be getting into this graphic novel, or what do you call it? Comic book. Yes. <laughs> yes. Once, once all the issues come out, they'll put it in a graphic novel. But it's it's been taking a while for each issue to come out, so it's like torture for us, isn't it? It is! <laughs> I go into the comic book store, and I'm like, hey, is this issue out? No, not yet. I was like, ugh! Yes. So, yeah, we're going to review the comic, but uh, we do have a feature on today's show also. Yes, that's true. And we're going to have another special guest in the feature, of course. We'll be doing one of our favorite episodes to do, and that's an author interview. And we have David R. George III to talk about his Deep Space Nine novel, Original Sin. But before that, we definitely should talk about this Mirror Broken comic, issue number four. And... Wow, things are, I mean, like you said, Bruce, it's taking a while for these issues to come out. So it's a long wait in between them, but we are here to decide, is it worth the wait? So Bruce, initial thoughts on this issue. What did you think? I think it was worth the wait because I, 
I really enjoy these issues because it's in the mirror universe, yet the characters feel like the TNG characters that we know. They're just in a different situation. So they're not like, oh, there's evil Data and there's evil Picard. I mean, yeah, they're not quite nice, but you know, they're a product of the situation they're in, but it really is data. It really is Picard. It is Troy. It's Riker. It's the whole crew. I mean, it's, they, they feel like the characters we know and love, but they're just in a different universe, different situation. And Amy, your thoughts on what Bruce just said, or your thoughts on the comic in general. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And because I know and love my TNG characters so much that, and to see them in this flipped role but yet there's still something true to their character. And I still haven't put my finger on it. And the the illustrations are just so well done and you know who they are and they, they capture the character and the essence, but then they do, you know, some sort of rotten things and with rotten motives, but yet they're still the characters. I still love them. I do. Yeah, the artwork, like you say, is incredible. I mean... We say this with each issue of this that comes out, but, you know, these panels and this artwork is just beautiful. I do have to say this issue to me is kind of the first one where Picard in particular, and we're not going to be spoiling everything that happens in this book. Well, you know, you should go out and pick this up. This is a great series. And this in particular is a fun issue. But in this issue... Did you guys feel that maybe Picard, at least with one of the actions he takes towards the end, is less the same Picard we know and love and more a mirror version of Picard? I I had that thought go through my head because I know you guys have said, and I agreed with you, that, that these are very much our characters just in a different situation. But there's one thing Picard does that I'm like, wow, you bad, Picard. You bad. Well, I don't know what you, which one you're talking about. I think I do. Uh, Hmm. but yeah, I'm wondering myself. Let me just say, does it involve beaming over to someplace? It does. It it involves uh, certain members of his newly acquired crew and uh, what he decides to do with them. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I think you're right, Bruce. Okay. I'm on the same train of thought as you, Bruce. Which I think is where Dan is at. Mm-hmm. I don't this know. It didn't bother me. No, it, yeah, it, we're talking in code, but no, it didn't. Nothing. It didn't. No, it didn't feel off to me. It felt. It felt mm-hmm. right for Picard in this universe. I mean, I don't expect him to be exactly like the Picard we know. So there's there's sometimes little things that are little off, but it's because they're a product of where he is. So it. Nothing mm-hmm. was jarring to me. The only thing that was jarring to me is how Wesley's hair went from being spiky to smooth. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even pick up on that. One thing, since you're talking about Picard and this essence of who he is, like I seemed to hear, you know, Picard go- gives great soliloquies in Next Gen, and he does so here. Like, you know, throughout, it's like, all right, we're going to deliver change and change will deliver us. Like it's these great moments where he's inspiring. And then, you know, around you've got, you know, Troy smiling and, you know, everyone's just like, okay, we're here for you ish, 
you know, that their motives are still questionable, but like he's giving these great speeches that this is what we're going to do. And we're united and we're going to have the best crew and no questionable crew. Like I saw that a lot more in, in this, in this episode or what is it called? Issue. Sorry. Issue. Issue. Yeah. <laughs> well, and Guinan yeah, no, kind of freaks me out too. Oh, yeah. introduction of Guinan. coming aboard. This this was yeah. interesting to me because this definitely doesn't pay off in this issue. We get her no. introduction at the start, but there's something going to happen with her at some point for sure. She's cray cray. Yeah. Interested to see where that like, goes. Like how she's Picard drawn also, and her. Oh, yeah. She's got the crazy eyes going on. Well, you know mm-hmm. what I think is going on there? I don't think that's really Guinan. I think that's Whoopi Goldberg, and she got beamed off the set of The View onto the Enterprise in the Mirror Universe, and she's like, what is going on? That's exactly mm, that's it. That's a good call. <laughs> that could be. <laughs> no. Also, I have to say, Picard, of course, does give great speeches and has, has great lines, but I think his best line has to be, uh, on my authority, you're not serving on my bridge wearing a sweater. Yes. Oh, was that great? <laughs> that was excellent. Yes. <laughs> right. No one's going to wear a sweater on Picard's bridge, at least in this universe. <laughs> Definitely not. I mean, who would do that? Why would someone ever allow that to happen anyway? Right? <laughs> I mean, what I really like is the look of the ships and how they're painted. And we've not just seen the Enterprise, but we're seeing the Stargazer and another one, the Arnold and Horatio. Horatio. Right. Yeah. So we're seeing several. And I just, I just, I mean, they look like the regular starships, but they've got, you know, that certain paint job, you know, it, it just looks really cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those scenes where they're firing is really, really cool and just beautiful. And you, you feel the action, even though it's still. I don't know. It's yep. like I said, you know, I'm I'm reading these for the first time and experiencing it and really taking it all in. Mm-hmm. And speaking as someone who loves good starship action, the New Orleans class starship is is zipping around there, which is one of those ones that was designed and, and built as a smashed up model for the background of Wolf 359 kind of thing. So, you know, to see it front and center, it's pretty cool. We've got an ambassador class ship like the Enterprise C, got the Stargazer, and we've got this other ship, which, uh, you know, one of those background classes that the total starship geek in me is like, oh, cool, that one. I love that ship. (laughs) Final thoughts on this issue. Again, we don't really want to give too much away unless, Amy, it looks like you have more you want to say. I'm sorry. (laughs) We can't. Have I waited long enough? You know what I'm going to bring up. The (laughs) Troy and Riker. Come on. You was would wondering. Think, <laughs> yes. No, we have to talk about it. I'm so sorry. But no, I'm not because I love it. So never apologize. Let's so, get it on. <laughs> yes, it was so great. Let's I'm like, oh. So but we know the uh, Inquisitor, right? That's what she's known. Yes, on and I counselor. love that. Yes. Mm. So we meet her and she's an ally with Picard. And so then to see what happens in this issue, and I won't spoil it, but I was totally shocked. I did not see that coming, and I love the twist. Like, I'm so excited to see that happening. And then Riker and his treatment of Troy. 
I didn't know if I bought that, but I figure it's the mirror universe, but that's not going to last long. So I'm okay with, you know, being patient to see that unfold. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm curious to see where that goes. And, you know, again, without giving too much away, I'm not a hundred percent sure on everybody's motivations in these scenes, you know, are Could we seeing... she be testing Riker? <gasps> oh, I didn't be. even think about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm thinking of like data in that episode, knowing that he knows that we know that he knows, yes. you know, who's what's going on here. Who's playing who what's happening. Yeah. So mm, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's the best thing about this is it's, it's making us wonder and it's making us ask questions. So, you know, there's the story could go in very predictable ways, but, it doesn't. It's it's got us questioning, which is really cool. So it sounds like we're all pretty on board with this one. Um, pretty top marks for this issue, I'd guess. Yeah, I I give it some high marks. I think I'm <laughs> I'm really waiting for when all these are out and we can just read it as one long big story. That's where it was really. I think it's going to really work for me. I mean, it works now, but it's really going to just feel epic when it's all together. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Like with this one, I felt like, oh my gosh, there is so much going on when compared to the previous issues. And I'm like, oh my gosh, just like scene by scene. And like even on each page, the there's so much more, there's more frames per page than I think we've seen previously. So we know that the story is picking up and it's like, oh yeah, it just, it twists and turns and it leaves you and you're like, I need more. Definitely. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot more dialogue in this issue. Uh, the, yes. the story is propelled a lot more forward. Uh, yeah. Top marks for me as well on this one. The artwork, of course, as usual is great. The story's awesome and they're, they're setting up the pieces and I'm really curious to see what the next move is here. So yeah, top marks on this one for me for sure. So I have one question again, just as a new reader to these comic books. Um, I noticed that there are different covers Yes, and Mm -hmm. is that normal? So like if you're a subscription holder you get a different cover than if, than say I do when I go and buy it at the retail. Is that normal? It's, it's become very normal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there one that's more coveted than the other? There can be like retailer incentive ones, like certain retailers will have a particular one. And there's also ones that are more rare. I think like there can be, you know, in a box of whatever, there'll be five of a variant cover sometimes. Um, I don't know if there's any set pattern to that, but yeah, (laughs) short answer kind of. So as a collector, what I want, I mean, obviously not the regular, cause that's going to be any Joe Schmo. But like maybe the subscription or to even better try and find this incentive that you are talking about? Yeah, I mean, it. Yeah. <laughs> for somebody who's collecting, that's serious collecting and wants all the variant covers, yeah, they're going to go, uh, they'll probably have a subscription or and then go to their 
comic book retailer and then you know try to find whatever special variant wherever that's available in a different retail location sometimes variant covers are specific to a convention sometimes and the mm-hmm. only place oh. you can get it is at a convention and i'm not just talking star trek but any comics or even uh you know magazines lots of publications are starting to do this and um it's you know even like for example like entertainment weekly uh, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, you know, get all four covers, you know, like, and you have to get the different <laughs> covers. And it, and sometimes people just go on, you know, eBay and just buy them from there because they want all the different versions. And our own Aaron Harvey here on Trek of Him has done some variant covers for some of the Star Trek comic lines. And he's got one coming for Discovery when those comics start coming out. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, Amy, so go ahead and start collecting. Yeah, you oh, can get great. them all. um speaking of collecting i know i said this about the waypoint novels as well or uh waypoint comics as well but this is one that i think when it comes out in a trade paperback form i might have to grab just as something to have on my shelf because the artwork is just gorgeous and i would love to be able to flip through all of these panels i i don't know about you guys but i think i'm going to grab that one when it's available yeah i think uh I'll grab it and then get the Tiptons and and uh, J.K. Woodward to sign it. Maybe if I ever see them again somewhere. <laughs> Ooh, good call. Yeah. <laughs> and then of course uh, we've got other comics that came out that we're not covering on this episode. So we've got Boldly Go. I think it's number twelve that came out, and what number eighteen of New Visions. I hope I got those yep, right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so there, we're going to cover those on a later episode. Yeah. So stay tuned for that one. But we definitely wanted to uh, get Amy on the show to talk about this one since since we've roped her in with, you know, mirror broken comics. We're going to get her addicted and maybe reading some of the other comics, too. Never know. Oh, my. Yes. Hook, line <laughs> and sinker with this this issue and this series. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on with us. And where can people find you elsewhere on the network or even elsewhere on the internet? Well, you can find me here on the network. I co-host Earl Gray with Justin Ozer and Richard Marquez. That's obviously the podcast for the next generation, my one and true love. You can find me on co-hosting The Edge with Aaron Harvey, Brandon Shea-Mutella, and Michael Schindler. And I do a little mini show called Postcards from the Edge. Maybe you've listened to it. You can find me on Twitter, at Miss Amy Nelson. But my favorite place is here on the Babel Conference. So look for me there. I thought you were going to say your favorite place is here on Literary Treks. Yeah, that's yes. totally where I thought you were going. <laughs> it is, you guys. I love coming on and talking with you guys, and especially with this, yes, comic book series. I'm totally loving it and so glad you're, like, texting me. All right, new one's out. When are you coming on? I'm so excited <laughs> to be a recurring guest. Great. Awesome. Well, we'll have you on when we get the next issue for sure, so... Thank you so much for coming on. And Bruce, what do you say we jump over right away to our feature and welcome our next special guest? Yes, let's do it for Deep Space Nine Gamma Original Sin. So this month we have another new novel that we want to talk about, the continuation of the Deep Space Nine story and in particular Ben Sisko and his family. 
And we're talking about Deep Space Nine Gamma Original Sin by David R. George III. And we're lucky enough to have the author himself joining us. So, David, welcome back to Literary Tracks. Thank you very much. Great to be here. It's always good to talk to you guys. Excellent. Always happy to have you on the show. Well, let's jump right in and talk about this novel. I have to say for myself, you know, Deep Space Nine is one of my favorite series, and it's really great to get a story centered on Captain Sisko again. And in this book, we kind of actually get uh, two stories for the price of one here. We have a story that takes place in 2380, which is kind of in that period during the time jump that we skipped over, events that have been alluded to but never really fully explored. And that one is talking about their uh, Cisco and Cassidy Yates' daughter, Rebecca, and her abduction by a member of the Ohala Varu. Uh, and then we also get a second story in the quote-unquote present, 2386, in which the Robinson is exploring the Gamma Quadrant, and several children are abducted from that ship, and once again, including their daughter, Rebecca. So what was the process of coming up with these two stories and the way they tied together? Well, I've wanted to tell the story of Rebecca's abduction for a while. Now, actually, uh, the initial abduction in 2380 when she was uh, still a toddler. And actually, it's not just Rebecca's abduction I've been wanting to tell. It's the period of time of about four years that we, as you alluded to, skipped over uh, in the books. Um, the, the books were going on pretty linear, linearly for a long time um, immediately after the end of the television series. And then all of a sudden we leaped from, uh, I think, 2377, early 2377 to early 2380. Or maybe it was 23, yes, 2377 to 2380 or 2381, I guess it was. So four years, four year jump from 2377 to 2381. And I was given the task of doing that. Uh, I was asked to leap the storyline forward to make it contemporaneous with the, the uh, next generation books that were going on at the time. And the sort of, as you say, the current uh, Star Trek uh, timeline in the books. And so when I did that, I had the choice of just ignoring the fact uh, uh, that four years of events went on and we didn't know what those were. The readers wouldn't know what those were. Or I could say, oh, all the storylines that we've been following from four years ago, they've, they've all wrapped up. Everything's fine and not say anything else about it. But neither of those things seem particularly satisfying, um, either for me as a writer or I think for, for readers so what I did was I hinted at some of the events that happened in that four-year period. And um, I had to give that some thought, but I also had to give either myself or other writers leeway to, to pick up those threads and tell those stories. If we got around to doing that, I was hoping that we would get around to doing it. I was hoping that I could do that as a writer, but I was also hoping that if I couldn't, that somebody else would pick it up. Um, because I'm also a reader, and I really enjoy the Deep Space Nine novels. So um, one of the things I alluded to, one of the things I talked about was Rebecca's abduction. And I didn't really talk too much about it, but I, I definitely said that it took place. I gave a time frame for when it took place. And I used it as motivation for Cisco at the time, because when we pick him up after the time jump in 2381, um, 
we find out that he's not in a good emotional space and lots of bad things have happened in and around his life uh, to, to put him in that emotional state. And one of the things was Rebecca's abduction. And I say, I didn't give too many details about it, but it's always stuck in the back of my head as a story that I wanted to tell. And um, really almost since we got Cisco back in Starfleet, since he returned from the uh, Celestial Temple and spent some time on Bajor, um, and then ultimately got back into Starfleet. That was one of the things I was asked to do uh, after the time jump was to get Cisco back in Starfleet. Um, ever since then, I've kind of been trying to maneuver him into an exploratory mission. I was told that he should get back in Starfleet and he should have his own ship, and I made that happen. And I've been trying to maneuver him to just sort of an old school kind of Star Trek, uh, just out there on the frontier exploring. And it's been a long time coming. There's been a lot of books between then and now, but finally this book, Original Sin, tells the very first tale of Cisco's exploratory mission into the Gamma Quadrant uh, aboard the Robinson. It's supposed to take two, three, uh, or even more years. It's an open-ended exploratory mission. And um, so yeah, that's, that's, where we, that's where I started with this. And I wanted to tell the Rebecca abduction story and so I tried to figure out how I could tell that story uh, and also tell the story of the beginning of this exploratory mission. And uh, the second abduction, which is not, strictly speaking, an abduction of Rebecca, as you said, it's an abduction of 87 children from aboard the Robinson, um, allowed me to, to um, draw some some parallels and, and just interlace the stories, the emotional beats with Cisco and Cassidy and all of that. Uh, and also kick up on some things I've hinted at about Rebecca, which is to say that Cisco, when he was conceived, his mother was inhabited by a Pawrave. I mean, I'm not a Paw, sorry, a prophet. Um, and, um, so the question's always been, well, is Cisco part prophet? And if Cisco's part prophet, does that mean Rebecca might be part prophet? And I've been hinting at that, and I, I wanted to explore that a little bit. So we get a little bit of that uh, in this this novel as well. Okay, so that kind of explains where, where I was going to ask. It's like why, kind of like you said, they're not really a second abduction, but why have two abductions running parallel? But I think it allowed you in the current time frame to explore what Rebecca might, what she might have going on with herself at this age and what she's always had going on and to discover that without giving too it much away allowed, at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it'll, it, it allowed a few things. Um, it, it, and as far as Rebecca's capabilities, what I end up showing in both abduction stories, if I just showed that the events in one abduction story, I don't know that it makes it would make itself apparent exactly what was going on. Showing it in both time frames, I think, makes it more apparent what exactly is happening because it's not exactly uh, linear or necessarily obvious what's going on. And, and I think having the two different stories in different time frames, but similar. Uh, conclusions 
kind of like, oh, oh, I get it. Okay, that's what's going on. But it also allowed me, oddly, the two the two abductions, which clearly are tremendously uh, emotionally onerous events for her parents, for Rebecca, for uh, Cassidy and Ben. Um, the second having the second abduction, it actually allows me to sort of bring them back together. Uh, Rebecca's initial abduction when she was three and a half was part of a series of terrible things that happened in Ben's life that drove him away from his family in an attempt to save his family, uh, which sounds counterintuitive, but the prophets told him if he spent his life with Cassidy, he would never, uh, he, he would know no peace. Um, and he thought, you know, bad things were going to happen if he stayed with them. The second abduction sort of allows me to show how far he and Cassidy have come back from that precipice of, of never being together again. So um, it's weird. I mean, the, the abductions are obviously not positive things, but one allowed me to sort of show the beginning of the bad times. And the second abduction allowed me to show the the culmination of the start of the new good times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I really like that juxtaposition of the two time frames, basically with, and where Ben is in his life and, and his relationship with Cassidy and the rest of his family. And I do have to say, I, I loved that at the end because you mentioned having that happen twice, made it really clear. I, you know, without going into spoilers, we'll go into spoilers in the in the last half of this uh, interview. But for the first half, we'll we'll just kind of obliquely refer to stuff. the The event you're talking about, the first time it happened, I was kind of like, "What? That that's weird." And then the second time, it's like an "Oh" moment, you know. So, good, yeah, good. That's because <laughs> that's what I was going for. My mother actually just called me the other day to tell me she'd finished the book, and and at the first point that you're talking about, she said. Oh no! They they've they've accidentally reprinted <laughs> a page because of well I, we'll won't say exactly why but she thought something was was done incorrectly but it made actually as she went on and saw the second they said oh okay this makes sense now so that's what I was going for and I was hoping it wouldn't be too confusing for readers. Yeah, my wife doesn't read Star Trek books, but she always asks me about them. She's like, so what's this one about? Tell me a little bit about the story. And when I start telling her, she's like, that poor little girl twice? Oh, my gosh, what are they doing to her? <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's the thing, too. The, really, it, it made no sense, no, no sort of logistical, dramatic sense for Rebecca to be abducted a second time on her own merits, as it were, it, that, you know, we couldn't have a Rebecca-centered abduction um, a second time and, and really have it make any any sense. Not, so especially now we're, we're in the Gamma Quadrant. Um, but, uh, that, but as her being part of, well, there's an alien race involved and they have their own reasons for doing things. Excellent. Well, I'm going to kind of focus a little bit uh, for a while on on the first abduction, the 2380. And in that story, you have a character that over the course of this novel, I really came to love. And that's Jasmine Tay. Now, this to me, she's a very interesting character. She's a young human woman who was part of the first minister of Bajor's security detail. And 
there's just so many little interesting things about this character. I was curious about how you came up with the character and is she possibly based on anyone in particular or what, what were the inspirations for this character? Well, I'm delighted that you like Jasmine because I love Jasmine. Uh, I, I, I've loved her since the moment I introduced her, which was actually uh, in an earlier book. She's been in and out of books, but in very small doses because um, we didn't see Rebecca's abduction at the age of three and a half. Uh, we, that was part of the time jump. But when we came back, Jasmine Tay was sort of uh, almost a part of the Cisco household in that she um, she nominally stayed around the house just to, you know, almost as a housekeeper or whatever. But in fact, she was keeping an eye on Rebecca um, because of her security background. And um, she's been in and out of scenes, in and out of novels and a scene here and there. And I just have always liked her. And I was really delighted to be able to open her up and, and create a full version of her character in this novel. Um, she wasn't based on anybody in particular. I just wanted to have have uh, just a, a a strong, smart person. I think if I if I had to write her again, if I had to create her initially again, I might have made her a little bit older, um, because she's sort of remarkable for somebody um, as young as she's. I think she's I forget how old she's twenty eight or thirty or something. Um, uh, during the course of the first abduction, she's 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 relatively young, given the breadth of her experience and how much the first minister trusts her and how much Ben and Cassidy come to trust her. Um, but I just I, I don't know I, I yeah she's not based on anybody in particular. It's just somebody who fit the story and somebody that I, you know characters sometimes just take on lives of their own and you have an idea in your head what you want them to be. And then they, they just, they just become who they decide to be. And um, you just have, I think the key in writing a new character is to be consistent and to be, uh, to try and open them up and, and get, allow the reader to know them. And I certainly had a lot of fun with, with Jasmine and I say it was great. I always liked her in the little scenes I had her in, but it was great in this novel to be able to really see her, uh, and give her a lot more background and and uh, and a lot more personality. Well, I agree with Dan. She was one of my favorite characters, also. Uh, and it, it, the fact that you say you wish maybe you wrote her a little older that kind of makes sense because she did. She is kind of semi-retired and she's in her late twenties. But this is twenty three eighty. We can go to twenty three eighty seven. Because she would be a little older. I don't know how you, how you could get her to the Gamma Quadrant, but maybe in some other story with some other DS9 crew members, there's always opportunities there. Nobody said she wasn't on the Robinson. Hmm. Wow, that's true. You would have think <laughs> you would think I would have mentioned her in the story if she was there, but and I, my intention was not that she was there. But I certainly would like to revisit that character if I could, because uh, I just uh, I really like her a lot. I just have a a really clear vision of her in my head, and um, yeah, she's just sometimes. I mean, you you create characters and you despise them because you're supposed to despise them because they're villains, um, and you always try and find a way to, to, to like them and, and to, to get behind their perspective, even if they are uh, on the wrong side of things. But 
with Jasmine, I just liked her just even more than I usually do with characters. So it was, like I said, fun to write her. Well, speaking of characters that you're supposed to end up despising because they're villains, uh, sticking with this kind of uh, past part of the story, that part of the story to me came across as uh, very much a crime drama exploring this very disturbed individual who perpetrated the crime. And a lot of the stuff, you know, a lot of these themes I seem to notice in other stories in that genre. And I think to me, that's one of the great things about Star Trek is it's just a setting. You can put any kind of story in there and and utilize that universe. And I was wondering what the process of maybe researching for this story and how you came up with the character of the man who ultimately kidnapped Rebecca. Yeah, you know, I I think I made what little hints I gave in previous books about who had done it and why. I, I, I left sort of vague, but there were a couple of details that I had to hit because I'd seeded them in earlier novels. But, um, I mean, he's in Ohalavaru. You already mentioned that. So that's, I mean, maybe it's a spoiler, but it is what it is. We meet him very early in the book. We meet him initially, immediately in the book. He's the first point of view character. but. Um, for me, it turns out that this really is not about religion with this guy. I mean, you can certainly create religious zealots. We've seen religious zealots in Star Trek, um, but it's not about this. This guy, there's just something wrong with this guy. Yeah, I mean, he's got serious emotional problems. And, you know, he 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 is in a holovaru in the sense of, he says he is, and he's he's gone to some meetings and things like that, but it's really not about any of that. He could just as easily, in my head, he could just as easily have gone to the uh, temple and the Bajoran mainstream religion and thought exactly the th- same things that he's thought as an Ahalavaru. Uh, it's it's uh, he's just he's just not not completely. I don't want to say he's not sane. Well, he's not sane, but. Um, I, I did kind of want to do a crime drama for that that half of the book, um, and I, I sort of approached it in that way. I don't read a tremendous amount of crime drama, but I, I do read some, and I'm certainly familiar with the genre, and I just wanted to try my hand at it. Um, and you're right, Star Trek is great uh, in, the, in that you can really transport just about any type of story uh, into – the Star Trek setting and tell it and still be successful. At least I hope I was successful. But I, um, yeah, I, 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 I went into that wanting to, to do it that way because I thought that that would be interesting. I mean, the thing of it is, we've seen stories take place after the time jump, after the period during which Rebecca got abducted. And we know that Rebecca didn't die. We know that she didn't have an arm chopped off. We know that Rebecca's fine. So, how do I tell the story in an interesting way when the reader already knows that everything's going to be okay? In fact, I mean, they will because the other half of the book is Rebecca six and a half years older. So, okay, Rebecca's going to be okay. So why do I care about that? She was abducted and well, let's make it interesting and, and what happened while she was abducted and why she was abducted and what the process was for actually rescuing her. And, you know, Cisco points out that even though their daughter wasn't physically hurt, they still don't really know whether or not she's suffered any emotional issues because of the abduction. She doesn't seem to. In fact, she seems fine. 
but almost too fine. And that's kind of scaring them as well. So um, I just wanted to mix all of these details up and, and put them in there and, and try and make the story interesting for readers. Dan, I'm just going to say, I think it's time we go into spoilers because I'm just holding back because I want to get deeper into this whole conversation of where we're going, David. <laughs> yeah, agreed completely. <laughs> so, so what do you, did you want to ask something, Dan? Or Oh, I was just going to say, so just this is your official warning, listeners out there. We are getting into spoilers here. So if you haven't read the book and you don't want to be spoiled, I suggest you pause and go read. And uh, it's worth it, too. You should definitely read this book. So anyway, carry on. <laughs> yeah. So the abduction, this maniac dude, this crazy dude, he uh, I like the story about the woman that has an interest in him. Tell us more about that. Yeah, you know, that was, she was an interesting character because I went back and forth with her. The the, the villain's, the, the abductor's name is Radovan Tavis. We meet him right away. He's a Bajoran. He's in a Halavaro, as you said, except not really. Um, and, and this woman, uh, Windsor Elevette, that, that finds an interest in him, she's not entirely, I wouldn't say that she is mentally ill, but she's a loner, maybe, uh, maybe not a loner, but she's, she's not somebody who has a lot of people in her life and she's not somebody who socializes well. And so she notices him at an Ahalavaro meeting and gravitates to him because he's like her. She can tell he's, he's clumsy, perhaps clumsier even in social situations than she is. And so she's sort of drawn to him as probably in her mind, a kindred soul. I mean, I don't really say all of this and don't explicitly say all of this in the book, but but I think all of the, the clues are there about what these characters are about. And um yeah, I went I say I went back and forth on including her. Um and and um I'm not really sure. I, I just she just it just seemed to be another complication and a way for me to also show what this man is capable of uh, and also get into the depth of his emotional problems. Because here's, here's a woman who really is, is genuinely interested in her, him. And he just, he's not only not interested, he's not interested because he's not attracted to her. He's not interested because he's not interested in anybody. He's in some sense, pathologically, pathologically, egotistical. I mean, pathologically self-centered. Um, not that he thinks he's great. I mean, he does have some delusions of grandeur here and there, um, but he he's just, he, he's got no empathy. He doesn't see things from other people's perspectives. He's only mired in a, his own uh, emotional state, and which is a bit warped. And, um, and by having this woman sh- show an interest in him and him have nothing but really contempt for her, uh, allowed me sort of to dive into his emotional state a a little bit more. Yeah, it was interesting to see things like interactions that on the face of them would seem very normal, but then you go to his perspective and his viewpoint is just so twisted. You know, he's actively repulsed by this person and set off by things that, you know, on the face of it seem very innocuous. Well, right. And, and again, I, it's not that he's repulsed by that specific person. He's kind of repulsed. It, it didn't matter who that woman was. It, it, he would be, he would have the same mindset. He's just, 
you know, he's not interested in other people, period. He, he doesn't, he, like I say, pathologically narcissistic. He's entirely in his own head and only interested. He, he's not just an egotist, he's an egoist, meaning that he believes, I mean, he feels, I don't know that he would be able to articulate this, but he feels that the only important thing in life is fulfilling himself in whatever twisted way he needs to fulfill himself. So not just an egotist where he's self-involved, but an egoist thinking that's okay. That's the most important thing. You know, my satisfaction, even though I would say the character um, is probably incapable of being genuinely satisfied emotionally. Well, I know he was annoyed by her. She kept coming by and, Hey, let me come in. He's like, Oh no, no, uh, I'm sick. I'm, I'm sick. And she's like, Oh, well, I can take care of you. No, I don't want you to catch what I have. And he's just making all this stuff up. I was kind of along with him where I'm, you know, I felt annoyed for him. You know, it's like, why does she just keep coming by? He keeps rejecting her in so many different ways. And she's just not picking up on it. Well, she's, she's, kind of pathetic i think you know they both are right. in their in their ways um but it's quick i'm glad that you uh that you related to the fact that he was annoyed that he she showed up um because he didn't want her to find that he's got an abducted girl in the bedroom <laughs> yeah and i think it would you to sympathize life of you to sympathize with the kidnapper <laughs> <laughs> i actually liked his character i mean you did get me to a point that i liked him i mean i wasn't necessarily rooting for him but I, I was very interested in him. And I liked the fact that when he kept Rebecca locked up, that he's using a physical key and the reasons behind that. I mean, there was there was so much detail into what he was doing and why that it really got me to understand him and really feel the moment of what he was going through. That's great. That's that's uh, glad to hear that. You know, it's interesting that. If you get into a story as a reader or or a movie as a viewer, and you get in a person's perspective, even if they're not a particularly good person or even if they're a very bad person, if you get if you're in their perspective and what they're saying makes sense, even if it's it's immoral, it's easy to sort of get sucked into that world. I, I mean, I mean, this is. <laughs> As sort of an example, I've been at parties where I've seen somebody enmeshed in a conversation and arguing a point about something, some social event or whatever, um, uh, something you know in our society. And I've been at another party and seen that exact same person arguing the exact opposite point um, because other people around them are, 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 are holding that perspective. So people, I think my point in all of that is people are very malleable and, and they relate to other people. Um, it's why we can have shows like, I guess, you know, the Sopranos or Breaking Bad, where the lead characters are terrible people. They're just awful, awful people. And yet there are people, there are viewers who root for them. And if they're not exactly rooting for them, they're still invested in their journey. And it's because you get, you get set up in their perspective. And so when they're trying to accomplish something, you naturally want them to succeed because they're the protagonist, even if they're a bad person. So that's all very interesting. And, um, you know, I tried to, I try, it's weird as a writer, you create somebody and he's your villain and uh, he's not a good person and he's a bit warped. But you want to be fair to him, 
right? You want to write the character in a way that is believable and not a caricature. And, and um, you know, I guess because of that, if, you're, if you can do that, then I guess you can bring readers along. Um, and you say you weren't exactly rooting for him, but you were invested in, in what he was trying to accomplish. Yeah, I mean, all of that said, I'm kind of worried about Bruce now. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but it, it's so true, especially a character with such, you know, problems like this, because I'm I'm right there with Bruce. I was, like he said, not rooting for him, but I was getting into his motivations and, and following him on this journey. And it's it's weird that someone whose perspective is so different from what would be considered, you know, quote unquote normal, uh, to be able to empathize is the wrong word, but to be able to come to some sort of understanding in your head with that character, it's, it's really quite fascinating. (laughs) It's also interesting because you just see him go from one thing to another, his thinking of, okay, now I got to do this and I'm going to do this for this reason. Just that whole process. Well, it's interesting because I really, um, one of the things I, I think I, I had him think or say a couple of times or, or hint at was that he was so invested in what he was doing that he was prepared to, to die in the process and even at some points anxious to just end his miserable life in the culmination of what he was trying to accomplish. And I don't ever talk about this explicitly in the novel, but toward the end, there comes a moment where he's like, here I go, I'm going to do this. And in the process of doing this, I'm going to be dead. And that's great. And then the moment comes and he's like, yep, I'm running. (laughs) So the guy is just, he's, he's not honest with himself. Like he's not even capable of honesty with himself because he's, he's not, he's not right emotionally. Yeah, I'm glad you brought yeah. that up because I I was a little con- I don't want to say confused. Maybe I was confused, but it's like I felt like that's you know he's going home. Hey, Rebecca, we're both going home as if he's going to end his life. But then, like you said, he ran. I was like, well, wait. I thought he wanted. Is he just changing his mind? But apparently, that's what was going on. Yeah, you know that's and that's a risk too because um, you know there wasn't a lot. You know that was toward the very end of the book. I, I probably could have talked about it i probably but you know he's getting in in order to talk about it you have to get into his head because i mean there's a three and a half year old and there's him and there's nobody else in that scene in those scenes uh there's nobody else really who knows what's been going on that he's ready to die and you know happy to die and they're both going home meaning they're both going to be killed he and rebecca um and i i, I guess i could have really talked explicitly about his cowardice and i worried about that actually because i I didn't want to confuse readers but i mean i was trying to go for you know here's this man who's who's prepared to die all along and 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 is anxious to die but when it comes down to it nah he's just a coward and to me the fact that you were even going to consider abducting a three and a half year old i don't care how genuine your motivation i mean I don't care what reason you have for abducting a three and a half year old. You start out as a coward. And so I felt like I had to honor that. I had to, I had to keep the character true to who he was. And even though he's been saying all these things, he's been all this machismo, all this, all this bravado about, yep, you know, I'm going to die in the service of, of what I need to do. 
he's still a coward and 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 this is how he's going to behave he'll say this and then run i do have to say that moment i actually really appreciated in the book uh when he's running away and rebecca we we go into rebecca's thoughts and she says to herself she watched the man run away and knew that he was even more lost than she was that was that was a great line and I don't know. To me, it felt like as soon as he started running away, when I was reading that, I kind of went, ah, yeah, of course, of course he would. You know, that that just rang true for me. You know what? I'd forgotten about that line, too. And yeah, that is in service of trying to say, yeah, this man's a coward. And um, yeah, getting to Rebecca's perspective, um, I tell you what's scary, what's really scary writing children <laughs> that's what's scary for me uh and especially like trying to write a three and a half year old and now writing a three and a half year old in these most astonishing of circumstances these most unusual of circumstances uh it's not like you, you can you know read a lot about you know how what you know the thoughts of three and a half year olds when they're on under these extreme duresses so i yeah, that was that was kind of scary, but I didn't feel I had no other way other than maybe a third person omniscient narrator to talk about how Rebecca survives the abduction attempt, and and I really because it was just her and Radovan, there, there were the two people there, and he was not going to understand what was going on by definition of what was actually going on, so it had to be her perspective, and. Um, the one thing I always sort of uh, relied upon was the fact that she's not just a three and a half year old. She's the three and a half year old daughter of the emissary. <laughs> and maybe, and she may be part prophet. So if, if I don't get her quite right, maybe that's because she's not quite right. <laughs> but I tried very hard to get her voice right. <laughs> Well, since we're talking about this scene and how she survived the abduction, let's just go there. What what is going on with her? <laughs> well, clearly she's part prophet. <laughs> <laughs> she's part prophet. Um, I mean, I, I say I've been hinting at that. Um, and Ben and, and Cassidy have not only talked about this or around this a couple of times, we've been in their own heads when they've been wondering, particularly Ben wondering about his daughter and whether she might have abilities and what that means and what it's going to mean for Cassidy, because Cassidy doesn't really have a great deal of affection for, for, for the the hyper-religious nature of of Bajoran society, um, especially because of what she's, you know, what, what's happened with her family and in particular, really the prophets, because she sees them as the cause of a lot of the problems that her husband's had and, and, and then her daughter. So, um, but yeah, clearly Rebecca has some abilities and here's the thing too. I didn't want Rebecca's abilities, whatever they were going to be. I didn't necessarily want them to be, I didn't want her to become a superhero. Right. I didn't want Rebecca to be able to just, um, you know, to just climb up a wall or throw her or throw me all near through the air or or, you know, I, or, or, or whatever. She couldn't just be a, a superhero. I wanted her abilities to manifest only in the most extreme of circumstances, because, first of all, if all of a sudden we have this 
a prophet as not certainly part of the Robinson crew, but aboard the Robinson. She's 10 years old when she's aboard Robinson. Um, if we have this super being aboard Robinson and, and they get in trouble, well, we know she's going to be able to, to, to save the day. Yeah, You don't want to you make her the, the Wesley Crusher of the Robinson. <laughs> yeah, or even worse. I mean, she you got this. She she could be a sort of a built-in Deus ex machina. So I didn't want that. So I I wanted her to be able to manifest whatever ability she has only under the most extreme circumstances, or at least whatever you know her extreme abilities are. And so I had to because she saved. She essentially saved herself in both abductions. I mean, Jasmine Tay is a good deal to do with her recovery, but actually saving her own life or some version of her life, uh, uh, Rebecca does in, in, in both 2380 and 2386, and she does it both times under very extreme circumstances. I mean, in the first, here's a bomb that detonates directly in front of her, little three-and-a-half-year-old body, and in the other, she has been not just abducted from the Robinson, but abducted from her own body. So these are very, very extreme circumstances that cause her not just anger, but just emotional pain and, and just profound sadness and despair. And those deep, deep emotions are what allow her to manifest her abilities. Regarding the ending in particular uh, in the 2380, it's interesting because you brought up earlier, of course, that because we know that she survives these events and stuff, you're, you know, a little worried that people might not, you know, get into the story or whatever, which means that like when that bomb goes off, I, my eyes are about like the size of saucers and going like, what is going on? How is, you know, and that was a genuine, if I may say a WTF moment. And that was really great. <laughs> Oh, good, good. That's exactly what I was going for. I wanted to get to that place where people knew she survived and then three feet in front of her, I'm sorry, a meter in front of her, because um, <laughs> uh, we're in the metric system in the, in, in the 24th century, um, a meter in front of her, a bomb goes up. I wanted it to be a WTF moment for readers uh, because they're like, wait, you know, this can't happen. How is this happening? Wait a minute. You know, um, good, good. Excellent. It's always good to hear that. I love it when I hear something worked. <laughs> <laughs> so since we're in spoilers and how that worked and, and these powers, what, so, because it's one of those things, yeah, I had that moment too, like, you know, WTF. And then, you know, then I get further in it's like, well, wait, how did she just do this? And I reread that again and it's, she's manipulating time or something just maybe around her. Yeah, she's, well, she's the, essentially brought herself in this extreme circumstance. Her emotions take over and send her back to uh, uh, a, um, a point of inflection. Uh, that is when things in the timeline change, when, when, when something, when her demise becomes, is about to become inevitable. She, she suddenly, she, you know, the, the prophets are nonlinear. They live nonlinearly in time. And she goes back to a moment where b before she's about to die. She's about to die because his bomb detonates. And then she takes herself back. And she didn't entirely save herself because it required the intervention of Jasmine Tay, who was there. 
and I imagine if Jasmine Tate hadn't been there and we get to the detonation of the bomb again and Rebecca's unable to do anything to save herself, that this happens again. And we'll repeat until maybe eventually, you know, something happens. I mean, the thing is, when she does what she does, it also sort of sends up a flare, right? All of a sudden, people get the, the I mean, Jasmine Tay and, and the Bajoran militia are looking for Rebecca in a certain area. And all of a sudden, there's this massive energy uh, burst. And nobody has any idea what it is. Is it a warp signature? Is it a, I forget the many things I said it could be. Somewhere in there, somebody talked about a temporal shift or something, whatever. But I mean, all of these things, just all this energy burst happens. People are like, well, what the heck was that? And then it's gone. But what it is, was Rebecca coming back from the point of her death to a period just a little bit before that. But that actually sends up a flare and somebody is then able to, to track her down and find her. And that happens in essentially in both timelines, um, you know, in the 2380 and 2386, I mean, it happens in a different way in the later timeline, but she essentially is the author of her own rescue. Even if she can't do it herself, she gives other people time to do it. Even if they, they have no idea that they, they're repeating a period of time. She's the only one who knows, and she's three and a half and so really probably doesn't understand it quite so much. And then 10, where she might understand it a little bit more, but maybe not tremendously. And she feels a little, I mean, she has a sense that uh, her parents might not approve of this, right? We see in the last chapter um, that, you know, so she just keeps it to herself. But she also knows she's got some capabilities. This is a very self-assured little girl. Yeah, it's basically like setting a uh, a save point in a video game kind of thing, but maybe not quite that active. Yeah, that's really a good analogy. I mean, you, you, it, she goes back to a save point. That's that's really a good way to put it. Wow, Dan, you're so smart. <laughs> I'm not even a gamer. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Well, I do want to de uh, definitely touch on the second story, of course, in the book, the 2386, where these children are abducted off of the Robinson. And that story to me took some very unexpected turns. It's a very different story than what we get in 2380. And we have this, I don't know if you want to call them an alien race, but this this conglomeration of sort of artificial life forms called the Glant. And I thought this story was really interesting because to me, I expected that we'd get the very typical Star Trek story. Everyone would come to some sort of understanding. We'd have some sort of rapprochement with them. But instead, interestingly enough, no common ground can be found. What? Uh, how, how did you come up with this kind of group of, well, this species and their really fascinating view of the universe, I guess? <laughs> well, you know, I like... I like alien perspectives specifically because they are alien. I mean, we have alien perspectives among various nation states on earth right now. Um, but how disparate can they really be? I mean, aren't we going to maybe have really, really different perspectives with a wildly alien race? I mean, alien in the sense that they're just very, very different from us. And I'm, I'm always interested in that. I, I wrote a book, I wrote a trilogy, an original series trilogy um, back in 2006 and seven 
um, but it was the 40th anniversary of the show. Uh, and one was a Spock volume, one was a Kirk volume, one was a McCoy volume. The trilogy was called Crucible. Um, and the Spock volume really, really tried to look at Spock in a way that we don't usually get, which is as an alien. I mean, yes, he's, he's half human, but he's half Vulcan. And a lot of times in the show and even in the books, that's sort of paid lip service. And we're always trying to, to get to Spock's human side. Well, I was really interested in seeing Spock's alien side. What, what, you know, exactly how it, does he tick in there? You know, I mean, we always see Spock wants to be logical and he, he doesn't want to be emotional, all that. But it's always a struggle for him, too. And really, he does, you know, ultimately find his humanity uh, in the course of the series. Uh, and I mean that in a literal sense, find his humanity. And I wanted to 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 explore his volcanity. So um I really wanted to find an alien race that you just, you can't find common ground with because there's just, just don't, there, there's no meeting of the minds. It can be their way of life. Their very existence is so different than our, from our own. One of the things that's very difficult in trying to do that though, is trying to write about it. I mean, I, I wrote a, um, uh, a novel called Olympus Descending, which uh, took place fundamentally in the Dominion, and it was about the founders. And I, I, I had to get into the head of Odo and several of the founders, and in particular when they're, they're in the Great Link. And if you actually watch the show and pay attention to what they say about the founders and the Great Link, it says they don't communicate in words. Well, that really doesn't help me very much. Uh, so, you know, trying to find a way to convey that while actually still using words, very, very difficult. But this is the kind of challenge that I'm sort of interested in because I really do believe in the Star Trek ideal of always trying to come to a peaceful resolution and and compromise and and um, inclusiveness, you know, trying to ever get everybody a seat at the table. But sometimes... You just meet up with people who are just, I mean, clearly the, the glant didn't get it. And, and our, our Federation heroes, they, although they understood the glant, they, they really, you know, didn't relate to them at all. And I tried to, I wanted, I like aliens. I like, I, I like aliens that are humanoid that we can, we can deal with um, what we're dealing with. When Star Trek is sort of being written in the style of Jonathan Swift, where, where Swift is not talking really talking about the Lilliputians, he's talking about the British government. I like that about Star Trek. So if we're talking about about uh, about the Federation or the Klingons or the Romulans or whatever, and we're really trying to make commentary on America or or the Chinese or the Russians or whatever, I, that's fascinating. But if you want to also try and shine a light on yourself. You can find an alien race that you just can't relate to at all. And that, I don't know, that makes for an interesting juxtaposition for me because I mean, what do you do? How do you deal with that? And you still don't want to kill people if you can avoid it, but you want to also, you know, not let them have your children because they need them for what to them is a very moral reason. So yeah. I don't know. I, I I had a lot of fun with the glance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. It was it was definitely fascinating. It was totally untenable 
position for Cisco to be in. And, you know, as much as by the end, like you say, you don't want to kill people and you wish it could have gone differently. After reading this book and racking my brain, I can't think of any other way it could have possibly gone, which is, you know, tragic, really. You know, in my head, eventually the Federation reaches out to the gland to try again. And, and uh, you know, in very cautious ways, um, you know, uh, that would, you know, be in the future. But to me, that's, you know, the sort of the Federation ideal. But, you know, part of dealing with the Federation, in my head, um, as, a, as a writer, but also as a reader and as a, as a viewer of Star Trek, part of dealing with the Federation is uh, exploring its occasionally imperialist behavior. Um, you know, it's okay to want democracy and and peace and and all of the things that the Federation aspires to, but you can't really impose that on other people. I mean, the Glantz had what we would consider a, a completely, uh, I don't know, antisocial uh, uh, society or, or um, I mean, it's just such an alien perspective. And yet they were all happy. Well, they were they were going along, and you know they you can't you couldn't impose your your way of life on them and make it work. The only way to to try and find a meeting of the minds is to find a meeting of the minds. And you know, after what Cisco and his crew went through, it just seemed like sticking around to talk. This is not the time for that. After what we've just been through, after what they've just been through, uh, they there's, they have we can't trust them. We know that, and they clearly can't trust us either. After all the things that we've done, so you know what? It's time to move on. But in my head, the Federation will one day come back and try and make overtures again, maybe successfully, maybe not. It's such an alien perspective. And I mean, the implications personally for. You know, when Cisco finds Rebecca in the situation she's in, what ultimately causes her to do this, uh, you know, choosing a different path once again, the the little time shifting thing that to me, like the the horror of that scene was uh, I, I think you captured that quite well. It was it was almost like a I mean, we're in the month of October now thinking of Halloween. It was almost like a body horror type experience. It was really interesting. Good. I'm, I'm glad that that was the case. That's again kind of what I was going for. So I'm I'm glad it worked in that way for you. I, it, you know, it was to me it was in in some ways it was worse than than the bomb detonating right in front of her. Um, it, it was just so well. It was, it was very alien, but it was also such a um, such a violation. Um, and we were given to understand an irrevocable violation. Uh, of course, they didn't know about Rebecca's abilities, but um, I don't know. I, I try. I, for me, that was a, a, a horrific scene. And it was, uh, it, you know, it's funny. It was a horrific scene. So it was kind of, I looked forward to writing it, but it was hard to write. Um, and you want to get the tone just right. And, and uh, because it was horrific, you want to make sure that it feels that way for the reader. 
well, it, it worked for me. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I was just like, okay, this is freaking me out. And I'm kind of glad they just kind of, the Robinson just said, okay, we're out of here. We got our people. We're gone. <laughs> Cause I didn't want to deal with them anymore either. Well, they didn't quite just do that. Well, yeah. They also set up, they, yeah, they didn't just cut and run. They, they got out while again was good. And then they also took the time to make sure that other space travelers happening by would not be caught by the glant because the glant have, uh, they have uh, essentially mines out there to, 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 to harvest other alien races. So, um, Anyway, yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I do think at some point Federation will make the choice to try and make overtures to them again. But I don't know where you can find the common ground. It's going to be very difficult. That that actually is also interesting to me, too, is that the clan just could not wrap their heads around, you know, essentially what, the, what, what Cisco and company were saying to them. And it was very difficult for... Cisco and company to figure out the motivations of the glance. And, um, you know, there's a short story. I can't remember the title of it. And I want to say it was written by Theodore Sturgeon, but I could be wrong about that as well. But whoever wrote it, one of the the very first line of the short story was something like he had to go home at lunch to kill his wife. And, And it was an alien race. And this was part of what they did. They just went home at lunch to kill their wives. Uh, and it was, and they were, they lived happy lives and this was the way their society was. And it's like, when you get in such an alien perspective, it's, it makes it hard to find common ground. It's also very difficult to write that, um, because as a writer, you have an obligation to your characters too. So when I'm writing in the perspective of the glant, I don't know if I wrote in the perspective of the glant, but I when I, when I wrote the dialogue that they were, they were, they were saying, they were speaking, I had to be in their heads and believing every motivation was moral. You have to do that to be true to your characters in order to make it believable for your readers. And uh, uh, I did not like being in the cold, dark places of the gland. <laughs> <laughs> so what's what's next for Cisco? Well, presumably, Cisco. I mean, this we catch up with Cisco three months into the Robinson's exploratory mission. Um, now, the Mission Gamma series, which was an early uh, post-television series series of books, uh, four books um, in the Deep Space Nine universe, um, took uh, the Defiant, captained by Vaughn, Elias Vaughn, um, for three months into the Gamma Quadrant. We make uh, Enterprise and a Romulan ship in the books at some point, making a board of exploratory mission that politics gets in the way of into the gamma quadrant. And then Cisco, although we don't see a lot of it, Cisco actually takes Robinson at some point on a six month exploration of the gamma quadrant. So if you're making a six month exploration, of the gamma quadrant, that means you go three months from the wormhole and then three months back. So we catch up with Cisco three months into the Robinson's mission into the gamma quadrant, which means he's gone the, the Robinson has gone as far as any Federation ship in the Gamma Quadrant. And he's still got, you know, two or three years left on his mission. So they're heading out into completely unexplored territory, unvisited territory, at least unvisited by the Federation. 
So I imagine that we are going to see Robinson, you know, we're going to see missions on uh, on it during the course of its exploration of the Gamma Quadrant and meeting uh, completely unknown races and astronomical phenomena and all wonderful manner of science fiction things. Well, yeah, I figured because when the book said Deep Space Nine Gamma, Original Sin, it indicated that there's probably more to come. Yeah, yeah, that, that's the notion is that we're now, this, this Gamma series is Cisco and the Robinson in the Gamma Quadrant. And, uh, you know, moving forward, that's what we'll see. I mean, Cisco was, I mean, he left Deep Space Nine at the end of the television series. And although he has visited, he's never been back. He, he's never to Deep Space Nine. He never commanded the, the even after he came back from the Celestial Temple for the birth of Rebecca, um, he's never gone back to command the station. It's always been, well, for a while it was Kira and then it was Vaughn and now it's Roe. So, um, and now it's not even the old deep space nine. It's the new deep space nine. <laughs> so, you know, things have changed and we've got, we've got a crew uh, aboard the new deep space nine and we're following them and we've got enterprise out there and Titan and, um, uh, Esri Dax and the what's Esri ship? Oh, Aventine. Uh, Aventine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Aventine. Aventine. And uh, and now we've got Cisco and Robinson. So we've got all manner of ships out there, uh, and and uh, following the various characters on their missions. How about you specifically? Is there anything we should be keeping an eye on on the horizon, either Star Trek or otherwise, from you? Um, I don't have anything Star Trek on the at the moment, um, but I'm ju- I've just uh, begun working on uh, a mainstream novel, and uh, I don't know when that might be A, done or B, published, but that's what I'm working on right now. Well, where might uh, our listeners be able to find you online when, when perhaps you do have news about that novel that you'd like to share? <laughs> Well, the best place for me is on uh, my website, which is drgiii.com. The III is for the third, David R. George III, so it's drgiii.com. And from there, you can get to my Facebook page and my Pinterest page and my Tumblr and my, what else is there, Twitter and uh, Instagram. They're all there. So um that's the best place to look for me and uh, you can even contact me through the website uh, if you want to and uh yeah that's the best way to find me and also on various podcasts <laughs> <laughs> excellent and we're very grateful for that too yes. uh, as always thank you so much for coming on the show i really enjoyed this discussion and uh you've got a really great novel here and hopefully you know, a, a portent of, of things to come. I'd love to see more adventures with Cisco and the Robinson. Yeah, same here. Yeah, I would too. Well, thanks guys. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I always appreciate the invitation. I always enjoy our conversations. So this is a really interesting time for Deep Space Nine because ever since the TV series ended, we've got this decade of books where everybody's kind of gone off into different places and such. And, and, Really, that whole crew has been split up. Some are together in, in certain areas and such, but now we've got Cisco out in the Gamma Quadrant on a galaxy class starship called the Robinson, exploring strange new worlds and all that. And it's just, it's, it's an interesting 
time. So I'm hoping we do get more Gamma books because I'd like to see more development of Cisco at this period of time. And I, I just wish I, I hope there's, there's a there's a, pl- or a really big plan after this book. Yeah, I agree completely. I, I have to admit when we when we got this novel and we found out, I mean, we found out quite a while ago that Cisco was going to be on the Robinson and I was kind of not really on board. You know, I want to see all our familiar characters back together, but you know, after this novel, I'm kind of, you know, this works. I I want to see more. I want to learn more about his crew. I want to see Cisco in charge of a big starship like the Robinson. I, I think it was really interesting. And I think to me, for me personally, anyway, it worked quite well. Well, and the two storylines worked well. And I think going to what you're saying is about wanting to see the crew back together. Well, the fact that they're not together, why not have a book where we have two storylines, one in the present time of him on the Robinson, one in the past during the TV series of a story that or an event that we never found out about and we're getting background information on it has something to do with what they're dealing with in the gamma quadrant. I mean, that might be interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. And I mean, once we get a look at the (laughs) schedule for the next year going forward, maybe we will find something from this series on that schedule as it stands right now. Still don't know a lot about what's coming, but hopefully we find that out very, very soon. There's a schedule? <laughs> There's a schedule? Where? Where there is are currently it? See, I'm glad you're saying Yeah, this. there are currently three novels scheduled for next year and that's it. And uh yeah, wow. we 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 need to we know there there are novels on the schedule and they have it at Pocket Books, but we want to see it, guys. Come on. <laughs> we want to see it, but the fact that we're talking about it now means that it's going to come it, out. Well, exactly. So that's kind of my hope. You know, we're recording these uh, a couple of weeks away from the release date. So hopefully when this comes out, I'll be wearing egg on my face and we'll know exactly what's coming in 2018. <laughs> but upcoming possible adventures aboard the USS Robinson are not all that we've been talking about on the network. So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Literary Treks. Yeah, so Trip, of course, is working to take down Section 31. Um, We as Star Trek fans who have watched all of the shows and read a bunch of other novels know how that's ultimately going to go. But in this story, he's, you know, kind of convinced that Harris is Section 31, kind of the be-all and end-all. He's at the top. It's his own private little army that he's constructed, and Trip is aiming to take them down. The 602 Club. And this is happening a lot more in the Star Wars books, and I, I think it's because it allows them freedom which is to do books that become character studies. And I think it's very clear that this book, in a lot of ways, is a character study of who this person is and what it is that causes the actions that we see in The Force Awakens to make more sense. Stage 9, a podcast about the people who make Star Trek. By getting people like Braga to come on board and work on this show, what they're going to be doing is deconstructing that thing that they did for all those years on Star Trek. Earl Grey. Is there anything else we need to add, or do we think that's the... 
Are we going to are we going to cure Riker or? <laughs> oh shoot! I forgot about Riker. Yeah, sure, fine. We'll keep him around. Yeah, we've cured Riker, and then uh, for for me, this would yeah or, or not. <laughs> And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and join in the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. And if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered there as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link. If you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week, you can become a patron of the network on Patreon. Just visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to get all of the details. Perks can include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more, available through our special patrons website, PatronZone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month, and we really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all of the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. So Dan and I would like to hear what your thoughts are on today's show, or even on past shows, or even just on the books and comics that you like to read. And there's many ways you can do that, and the best place to join in the larger conversation is in the Babel Conference. It's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that too. Just go to the form on our website at trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that will come right to us. And you can also find us on the on Twitter at trek.fm and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And of course, special for Literary Treks, we have a Goodreads group where we have bookshelves with all of our previously covered books, as well as the currently reading section so you know what's coming up for future shows. Plus, there are always great conversations happening about all the books and comics that make up the Star Trek literary universe. Just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. We'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shea-Mutala, and Justin Ozer for their support of the Trek FN Network and for being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. Now, Bruce, when you're not setting up beacons to warn people away from going anywhere near the glant, where can we find you? <laughs> I don't know why that sounds so funny to me, but <laughs> people can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And you can find me here on the network on Live from the Edge with Brandy Jackala, where we talk about uh, Discovery the next day after the premiere. So that's Monday evenings at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific time. Join us live for that. And also you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about Star Wars, of course, StarWarsReport.com. Check it out. And uh, you can always find me in the Babel Conference and Dan, when you're not locking people into a room with your key, where can people find oh, you? Oh, man. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Productions. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S Productions. 
can find me on Twitter at Kurtrats, on Instagram at Kurtrats47, and on YouTube at youtube.com slash Productions. And of course, just like Bruce, in the Babel Conference talking about Star Trek. Well, thank you everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.